All right. It is the week of October 2nd, 2022, and this is the Fight Business Podcast. I'm your host, Patrick Oje, and today we're going to cover MMA contract disputes. There's currently one going on between Aries FC and the UFC. We need to look at the contract dispute itself, but also the larger role that managers and agents play in MMA fighters. It's something we haven't talked about in a while. I think it's important we examine, especially with this particular case. Next, we're going to talk about Aspen Ladd going to the PFL. While it's not unsurprising, it does speak to PFL's larger business strategy and mirrors what a different MMA promotion did not that long ago. So we'll break all of that down and kind of peg where PFL is and where they're trying to go and how they could use what another MMA promotion did semi-recently to hopefully boost their ratings, revenue, all that fun stuff. Then we've got to talk very quickly again on uh, Hamzat Jamayev and... Ramazan Kadyrov, because there's been a couple of updates there from when we spoke last week, some important ones to note. Then we'll do our quick hit section. And finally, we're going to wrap up today's episode with the main piece, which is an update in the antitrust lawsuit, finally. Not the update that we're really hoping for, but at least some important information that we need to talk about. So with that in mind, timestamps at the bottom as always, and let's go ahead and dive right in. All right. First thing we have to talk about is a very important discussion, albeit it will be brief. Um, we're going to talk about it in the larger scale, how this all affects business as well. But we need to talk about a specific contract dispute going on right now between uh, Slim Trebellisi, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, and his manager or former manager, it's kind of gray area right now with Fernand Lopez, uh, and then UFC, Aries FC, and Ali Abdelaziz. So... The normal process, right, if you are on a smaller promotion, a feeder league, right, to the UFC, PFL, Bellator 1, all that, generally there is a clause in your contract that says you cannot fight for other promotions, exclusive, you know, such and such promotion has exclusive rights to your uh, fighting ability, blah, 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 except when it comes to sometimes it's just the UFC, other times it's Bellator, any of the major promotions all listed out. But there's a clause that essentially says like, hey, if one of these big promotions calls you up, you can get out of your contract. As long as you don't have a fight scheduled, as long as you're not holding a belt and you haven't like relinquished it, right? You can't go into the UFC as our champion, but as long as you relinquish the belts uh, or you don't have a fight scheduled that's, you know, headlining a card, we've already booked all that stuff that you've signed, we'll let you out of the contract. You can go to the UFC. This is the case for Slip. Uh, in his Aries FC contract, there is a clause that has been revealed, I believe, by Ali that says, like, look, you can you can leave and go to the UFC. Uh, and, and he's not currently scheduled for a fight, so shouldn't be that hard, right? Here's where it gets kind of iffy. And if you noticed, uh, this would have been, I think, a month ago or so, Slim was added to the UFC, was going to do, I believe, a, for, a short notice fight, then was cut. And... From what we can tell, the reason why is what's being reported um, from some great reporting done by Cole Shelton, who covered a side of the story that was not getting covered, which we will circle back to. Um, Fernand Lopez was currently Slim's manager. Slim, after he won the belt in Aries, was apparently contract or contacted by Ali Abdelaziz, or he contacted him. I don't know exactly how that happened. Uh, kind of went silent on Fernand uh, on Lopez and then tried to sign with the UFC 
even though he had a management contract with Lopez and was not officially released from Aries. So then Lopez kind of shut that down, said no, and here's where we are today. The reason why we need to talk about this is, yes, it's a, it's interesting, and yes, it covers the business side, but it goes to the overall business structure in the MMA industry right now, right? Why would Slim do that to Lopez, right? If it Maybe it's personal. I can't tell based on what's been reported. But if it's not personal, why would he leave Lopez and, and immediately talk with Ali? Good question. Um, this this is something that is not talked about often enough, especially in media because of the influence of certain people in media, which again, we're about to get to. But there are certain players in the game that have their own mini monopolies or own power in the MMA industry. Ali Abdelaziz is one of those people. Um, Michael Fidel, when I worked for the Body Lock, uh, I believe you can still find the article out there, did a fantastic piece talking about Ali Abdelaziz's involvement in World Series of Fighting and then PFL, right, where he ended up managing half of the champions um, and, and kind of had those relationships. We know Ali is a major player in the UFC with the amount of people that, you know, jump ship to sign with him and the amount of champions or, um, you know, contenders that are signed with Ali. He doesn't have a monopoly, but he clearly has a lot of power in regards to getting things done with the bigger players, specifically PFL and UFC. Not to say that he's not involved with Bellator as well, or one, but um, but I mean, those he is a major player in the MMA manager space, right? And so it's tough because. When you're someone like Slim coming up, right? If Ali is on your radar and says like, hey, I can promise you this, you know all the people that are in my stable. I'm sure he's saying like, hey, if you want to talk to Justin Gagey, if you want to talk to Kamaru Usman, like I'll get you in touch. They'll vouch for me. It's it's the big name in MMA management. And you know that Ali is probably going to get you a UFC contract or get something signed in, in a manner that is favorable to you because Ali has consistently worked with the UFC on their terms, right? It's from the UFC's perspective and PFL to an extent, right? They love working with managers that will accommodate them. And Ali is well known as being one of those managers. It's not a secret. He is all over the place. He is the, Biggest name. I mean, there are a couple other names you might recognize, right? Um, Makikawa, uh, which again, I'm butchering all these names, but um, uh, Markel Martin now because of what he was able to do with uh, Francis Ngannou. Right? There, there are a couple of names that you might recognize, but Ali is almost certainly the biggest name. And it's because of the relationship he's built with the UFC. Now, in Cole's piece at bjpen.com, this is where it gets and kind of pulls back the curtain on some, on some of the dirty laundry in MMA where, you know, Fernand essentially talks about 
everything that's going on and then has recorded a clip of a conversation between him and Ali Abdelaziz where he says, you know, brother, France doesn't have shit, brother. Oh, sorry. Uh, yeah. Um, <laughs> I have own the media. Let's be real. Uh, and then Lopez says, you don't understand me. I do not have any media. I do not. I do not. Abdelaziz says, can I ask you a question? Why do you think Damon Martin of MMA Fight and don't put the story out? Yeah, he has the story. I say, hey, please don't put it out. I don't want this. Yes. Why do you think you don't put it out? Because I don't want it put out. Good question. And I mean, that's that's a question for Damon Martin too, in terms of integrity and some of that stuff. Yeah. I mean, if that's true, that's all that's clearly Abdelaziz's voice, right? What's that about? And then you have Brett Okamoto tweeting about, hey, here's what's going on. Uh, it's an unfortunate situation with this contract going on. Doesn't mention the dispute between Abdelaziz at all. It just basically talks about Lopez. Um, it says, you know, uh, an update on Tunisian heavyweight Slim Trebelisi. Uh, uh, UFC book Trebelisi, a very promising pro- prospect who has trained with Ngannou in France due to a contract dispute. Uh, Trebelisi is under contract with Aries, a French promotion, who whose president is Trebelisi's former trainer, Fernand Lopez. Um, he's working with a lawyer to get out of the contract, which has a clause that Aries would ever release him if he ever got to the UFC. Lopez is refusing to grant the release based on his assertion. He hasn't acted in good faith in the relationship. Uh, Lopez told me today he intends to fight in court, show everyone he won't be bullied. Uh, Lopez said if it takes up years of Trebelsi's career, so be it. Um, another wrinkle, he and Trebelsi have an active managerial contract with them. For now, it appears that at the French court, um, all that stuff. So Brett puts this out, but doesn't mention Ali Abdelaziz once, which is interesting because, again, Cole's reporting, we have screenshots and recordings where Abdelaziz is clearly a part of this. Abdelaziz has influence on the media. It's not that, I mean, draw whatever conclusions you want there, but... That's pretty interesting, right? Pretty interesting that he would name drop Damon Martin and that Brett Okamoto would put that stuff out and not mention Abdelaziz at all. Now, from a business perspective, again, these are all players in a space in the MMA industry, and these are all people that have favorable or have curried favor with bigger names, specifically the UFC, right? This is not uncommon. This isn't the first time something like this has happened. I've heard stories. Um, I don't have enough sources that I can write about it, right? But like Michael Fidel's piece is, is the tip of the iceberg on some of this stuff. This stuff has been going on for a long time. Um, it will continue to go on. But the reason why is in some ways, it's almost like vertical integration. And I know that sounds weird, but let me piece it together for you, right? From the UFC's perspective, they want to control everything in the supply chain when it comes to their product, which is putting on fights, uh, to getting to the consumer, which is getting money from the consumer for whatever reason. That includes adjacent areas like media, managers, any cog in the machine, they want to be able to have some dictation of control over, right? 
they can't control everything, but it's not surprising that from a business perspective, you pick fighters who are easy to work with. You pick managers who will be agreeable and do what you want. And you give media access, sometimes special access to those that are going to report on things that shed favorable light on you. Right. And these are all cogs in the machine and it's how it works. It is not the fifth estate doesn't exist in MMA media. I'll tell you that right now. There are very few reporters or journalists out there that legitimately ask these questions, are willing to get their hands dirty or, you know, face the wrath of criticizing certain people in the industry, right? Um, Luke Thomas talked about it a little bit, especially on his radio show. I haven't seen him talk about it too much on Morning Combat, but that makes sense. But I mean, you know, he, he talked about how on his radio show, he had trouble getting fighters on his show a lot of the time. And it's not surprising because, you know, the, the kind of running joke, if you followed, was like, well, he was going to ask some of the tougher questions. He was going to criticize people in a way that he, he wasn't going to hold back or, or try and be favorable and say, oh, okay, I'll make sure to hold this. But no, that's not how he operated for the most part. It, this is all part of the larger machine. And that's the biggest thing we need to focus on with this is you have one outlet covering a major piece to this story, which is the involvement of Ali Abdelaziz. And then you have multiple bigger name outlets, not mentioning that piece at all. Just talk about how it's a shame that there's a contract dispute going on and it's kind of whatever. It seems interesting, right? And you have Ali saying he has influence over the media. He he names drop he name drops Damon Martin. It this is all part of a larger scheme. And and important to note here that this doesn't just happen in the MMA industry, right? It happens in other sports. Uh, it happens in happens a lot in the corporate world. Depending on if you're a you know if you're a particular reporter in an industry where your access is kind of harder to get um, happens all the time, right? If there are few players in your industry with monopoly, monopoly, duopoly power, where there's only a couple of big names, you can't afford to piss them off. Because if you do and you get your access revoked or you aren't allowed to talk to fighters, you can't make a living. And again, using that narrative and PR tool is huge for bigger promotions and bigger companies in an industry that uh, that are specifically in an industry like MMA because they can control some of the narrative, right? It, it is interesting to think how many people probably saw Brett's tweet um, who then run with it and just say, oh, yeah, whatever, and then don't follow Cole because he's not, you know, a guy, he's not the main face of ESPN MMA coverage, right? So he's going to have a lesser audience. I love Cole. Don't get me wrong. Uh, but he's he's not as big as Brett, right? And they're going to have no idea that Ali is involved in this stuff. That's part of using 
the media to your advantage. And that happens. It happens all the time. It's, this is the way it works in MMA media. And again, from a fighter perspective and a fighter management perspective, you're trying to be a fighter's manager. It's going to be tough because you're going to have somebody like Ali, who's got a bigger presence, who is able to have some influence because again, Ali can just say, no, you know, you pissed me off. You're not going to speak to my fighters anymore. And then he will tell his fighters like, yeah, don't talk to this person. And then that shuts the reporter out. So then the reporter has to kind of play ball with them, right? It, it puts him in a bad position. It is important to focus on these inner workings. Because a lot of times fans and and even educated fans see what is out there, assume, okay, it came from this source. So it was done in good faith. It's done of it. Sometimes it's not. And to think about, again, from a manager perspective or a fighter perspective, you have to be careful. Because a misstep like this, it's it's huge for Slim that he is now embroiled in this legal battle. And it may take years off of his career. He's definitely not getting paid or the UFC, you know, purse purses. He's not fighting in Aries FC as far as I know. Um, so he's basically stalled his career. He's going to have to work somewhere else, right? And he's 29. He's about to hit his prime. He's really getting, if he's not in his physical prime, he's like pretty much in fighting prime, right? Usually around 30 to 32, uh, 33 tends to be the years where we see a lot of true uh, prime MMA athletes. And he is, he's stuck because according to Cole's article, which I haven't seen refuted anywhere, so I'm trusting that. And again, there's screenshots, there's recordings. It's hard not to. Because he decided to go or try and go with Abdelaziz when he had a managerial contract with Lopez. And Lopez, of course, is going to fight it because he's missing out on money. He feels that he's being threatened by Abdelaziz. He's got to kind of, you know, not be pushed over here because if he is, then it sets a precedent with other fighters he has, right? If he tries to take this to court later over a bigger name fighter, right? Let's say he somehow gets another Nganu under his, his managerial contract. Nganu tries to leave or that the new Nganu tries to leave and he's let Slim do this, then they might take him to court and say like, you let Slim do it. I mean, why can't I? And then that definitely undermines his case. So he's got to fight it from his perspective. It's going to cost him money. I'm sure he doesn't have as much as Abdelaziz or some of the other bigger guys. So it it becomes this cycle. But it's it's something where, again, the reason we're covering it today and why I let off with this is because you've always got to consider that any business decision, however small in the MMA industry, has a lot of moving pieces, right? There's a lot behind it. It's not as simple as, oh, this guy was signed and then he was cut because of some weird reason. There's almost always something else. There's a lot we can't even see because of our media access, right? Why, my favorite is still, why is so-and-so on the prelims versus the main card. It might've been that, again, numbers dictated, okay, this person has got a bunch of media 
um, social media presence or is dictating what we like in ESPN plus numbers. So we're going to put him in this slot. It might also be that that person pissed off matchmakers, right? Joe Silva was notorious. We have emails from the lawsuit where Joe Silva was notorious and stories where you piss him off or you do something wrong. He's going to give you harder matchups. There are so much, there's so many politics and so many things you have to consider that it's important to remember the big picture. It's never as simple as just, okay, there's a fighter. He's trying to get a fight with the UFC. He's debating with the UFC and Dana, and that's it. Never. There's always media involved, managers, agents. It's their own little fiefdoms, their own little nuances in politics. It is a much grander scape than, oh, this fighter is calling out Dana White for pay. And, you know, Dana says, oh, that's ridiculous. And they're having a dispute. It's never that. There's there's at least four other people involved, right? Important to remember that. And it'll be interesting to see how this resolves. Most likely, again, I think it makes sense for Lopez to defend his managerial contract like he has. And I can't imagine that the bigger media, bigger mainstream media guys don't keep painting it as like, oh, this is a sad story that this happened without really touching on Ali's involvement. We'll see, but it's not in their best interest to. It's not like, oh man, they're just crappy people. And, but it's, it's a business from a business perspective. You don't mess with one of your main suppliers or clients or vendors, right? Sometimes you have to, you'd love to report Personally, you'd love to say, yeah, I'd love to report the full story and tackle this and this and this and this. But I also have to be aware of how that will affect my current clients, my current vendors for those clients, any subcontractors, any partners that I have, right? Because in this case, Ali is essentially a partner for the media. If you want to get that story or interview you know, get that interview with the champ Kamaru Usman after a crazy event, or you want to get, you know, the breaking news on Justin Gagey or something. It's not as simple as, okay, I can just go say whatever I want and then call Gagey up and say, Hey, let's talk because Ali could come in and say, no, like can't do that. You've got to make sure you don't ruffle the wrong feathers. So let me know your thoughts on this whole situation, where you stand with the contract situation between Slim and the UFC. Um, if you have any questions, again, about how this all kind of works, I can answer as much as I can. I I clearly am removed from it, right? Like that's part of why I can talk about it so openly. Um, but let me know your thoughts on this because it is a big deal. And it's important to remember in the grand scheme of the industry that there are many other parts that are rarely talked about that are always moving and always affected it's not just fighters and promoters like Dana White talking directly. All right, next up, we have to talk about Aspen Ladd going to the PFL. So Ladd was supposed to fight Sarah McMahon. Um, I think it was, what, an event ago? Two events ago? Missed weight and was pulled from the card. Uh, fight did not happen. Was cut by the UFC. Ladd had a history of missing weight, right? Wasn't shocking that she got released given the amount of times that she did not make weight and cause issues but she was a ranked bantamweight 
And, you know, some people had talked about her challenging for the belt uh, at one point or another. And she was in, she was in that upper tier of the Bantamweights. If she strung a couple of wins together, she probably would have fought Nunes. Right. Maybe even at 145 for the featherweight, who knows? She almost immediately gets picked up by PFL and is going to be part of the featherweight tournament in 2023. So hopefully she doesn't have any issues missing weight for that. And then it's also been talked about that she would be a potential super fight opponent for Kayla Harrison in PFL's pay-per-view division. So why am I talking about this in its own segment instead of saying it in the quick hits? Cause Oh, it's yeah, it's interesting. I don't want to look at this about just Aspen lad signing with a different promotion after being cut in that whole saga. Although it does speak again to free agency and, and the options you have right now, if you have enough of a name, not even like a huge name, right? She wasn't a major draw. She wasn't a former champion. Wasn't even a for, former title challenger. And yet she was instantly picked up. Instead, I want to talk about PFL's current strategy because we've seen this before and we've seen it in Bellator, right? Bellator from 2016 to maybe even prior to 2016, uh, 2015, but 2016, especially through 2020, 2021 was very much the, Hey, I used to be in UFC. I'm now over in Bellator show. Sometimes you'd have true free agent signings um, like Sergio Pettis, which was big. Other times you just had somebody that was cut or an older guy that was let go for losing too many times or fought out their contract. And you know what? Come over to Bellator, right? Roy Nelson, Frank Mir, um, Yoel Romero, technically still, Anthony Johnson, uh, there's so many. I, I could go down the list of the amount of guys that seem to be kind of a situation. Uh, Leoto Machida, right? Uh, <laughs> Brian Bader. The, it was a situation where, okay, you fought in the UFC. You got enough name value. You're now gone from the UFC for whatever reason. Come to Bellator. And we're going to build our roster that way. And that's what Bellator did for a long time. And then more recently, around the time with where they signed UL and then they kind of stopped, they, they stopped that process, right? It wasn't, okay, I've been let go from the UFC. I've got enough of a name for myself, probably going to Bellator. Nope. Nope. They, they shut it down. And part of the reason for that is right. If you sign some of these name guys, they're going to expect contracts that are, are at least semi similar to what they were getting in the UFC, especially if you sign them as a true free agent. Um, Sergio Pettis, I'm sure, was offered solid money, right, to go to Bellator when he was still very much in the title picture in the UFC. You, you've got guys where it, Frank Mir, right, is, isn't going to make anything. I mean, it's tough because since Frank Mir fought at a time when fighters were traditionally getting less it's kind of iffy but probably wasn't getting as much as he got for his last couple fights in the ufc as a former champ as a bigger name but he probably got something similar and opened up the gates for sponsorships which was huge because they didn't bellator doesn't have limits on who your sponsors can be etc cetera, etc cetera. 
you've got to pay those guys at least something appetizing enough to get them to to step into the cage for Bellator. So it's it's kind of cost heavy in certain cases. In other cases, not so much, especially if they've lost a ton and they don't have a ton of name value. You're getting less money, but still, you got those guys from the UFC, and the the strategy there is okay. These guys have already built up enough of a name for themselves somewhere else. If we get them on Bellator, people will watch Bellator, and then not only will they see those guys, but they'll see other people in our product. They'll see our homegrown prospects. They'll see MVP. They'll see Adam Borix. They'll see Aaron Pico. They will see these guys that show like, oh, there is real talent here. Yes, like this is a competitor to the UFC, et cetera, et cetera. And then they'll become Bellator fans, not just UFC fans, not just uh, Matt Mitrione fans, however many there were at the time, right? Uh, not just Fedor fans, although he was never in the UFC, but you get what I'm saying. Uh, they will then become a fan of the organization. They will be exposed to new fighters that they may have never seen before. They will then want to buy their merchandise. They'll want to come to the shows. They'll pay for subscription services to drive views, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Right. That's the strategy is get individual fighters fans to come watch them in a new product environment, like what they see around it, and then become a product of the entire environment instead of just the fighter. That's that's the idea behind that customer conversion. It's not a bad call and it's not a bad strategy to use. We saw with Bellator that it didn't translate always to the ratings they hoped, but there was definitely a boost in certain scenarios, right? You did have some fighters that went over, especially when they first went over, you saw a increase in ratings or you heard Scott Coker say, oh, we're happy with numbers here. And it helped generate some buzz. Media especially tend to follow people that used to be in the UFC, right? Um, I forget the name of the promotion. LXF, I think is what it is, where you've got... um, or lights out or something. You got like John Dodson fighting before he went to BKFC and you've had some UFC vets fight on these smaller cards, right? Those cards are never getting picked up by MMA fighting or, I mean, occasionally you've had ESPN. It's been very rare, but still you've had ESPN occasionally. Um, you, bigger media sites are looking at those promotions for probably the first time and writing about them tweeting about them because you have UFC vets on them, right? Especially when that promotion, I think it's LXF. I apologize if it's not where you have UFC vet versus UFC vet. That generates buzz from the media. The media then tweets it out. Then they get MMA fans to say, Oh, this is happening. Cool. I want to look at it. I didn't even know otherwise, right? That becomes a cycle. That's what PFL is doing here. That's what Bellator did for a long time. After their merger with Icom CBS, after they kind of said, okay, I think we're going in this new direction, they pivoted, and now they don't do that as much. But PFL is now in that same phase. They're now in the let's try and acquire as many customers as we possibly can through this method, and then I'm sure they will pivot again at some point. But there is usefulness in trying out and using that strategy for a certain period of time. At some point, it will run its course, right? If you keep doing it over and over, 
unless you're getting a Nate Diaz or a Conor McGregor or someone huge, it's unlikely you're going to continue to get customer conversion in that same method at rates where it justifies spending the increased costs for those name value fighters. Where that exact break-even point is, it's hard to say, depends on the unique situation, but it speaks to, again, a, a solid strategy, or at least what appears to be a solid strategy. I can't tell you what the returns are because I don't actually know. Um, on the surface, I'd say they're mixed, depending on the fighters, but it, it's a it's a tried and true strategy. They've PFL has seen this done in Bellator. They've seen it done in organizations and won a little bit, right, with Eddie Alvarez and Demetrius Johnson. They are now in that phase. You used to find the UFC, great, we need you for the lightweight tournament, come on over. Or you are a free agent in the UFC, you know, we're going to make you offer, try and get you over here, try and get more people over here. Because if we stack our cards with enough UFC vet versus UFC vet, you're probably going to have me, you're definitely going to have media cover a little bit more. And then you're probably going to have people say, oh man, like, I don't know, I'm trying to think off some top of my head. Let's say Jeremy Stevens went back to lightweight. Oh, okay. Shane Burgos versus Jeremy Stevens as a fight in PFL. Well, that's basically two UFC guys that just fought not that long ago. I want to see that fight. Cool. And then, oh, look at PFL. Look, you got Kayla Harrison. You've got other names that we know of Anthony Pettis and Roy McDonald and Brendan Loftane, who was on Dana White's Contender Series, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, and this format is cool. You see how it goes. That's the thought process here. So we need to call that out because Lad is just another pickup here. And I expect you're going to continue to see this for quite some time until they really fill out their tournament rosters. They're still going to want their homegrown talent there, but you're going to see, I think, a fair amount of UFC vets in PFL. I wouldn't surprise, wouldn't be surprised if they started grabbing some former Bellator and one guys too uh, as time goes on, but especially UFC vets. If they become free agents, like say Aspen Ladd did, where they were still relevant in the rankings, all of that, they're going to get swooped up fast. My guess is by the PFL. I mean, there's a reason Anthony Pettis is getting paid as much as he is in the PFL when he was struggling against some of the lower-end UFC competition, right? Uh, there's a reason Roy McDonald got swept up after Bellator was, his run with Bellator was was kind of done. It, it's going to continue to happen. So I would say in the next couple years, providing PFL continues to make strides, stays you know, afloat, growth, all that stuff, you're going to see more of this. And in Lad's case, it's great because then you can have a quote-unquote super fight with Kayla Harrison and Aspen Lad, which is still a little bit, if you look at their skills, it's like, ah, okay. But it's someone of name value for Kayla Harrison to fight. Somebody that MMA fans will recognize. Oh, I know Aspen Lad. Okay, Kayla Harrison is fighting her because I don't know these other girls that Kayla Harrison has been beating and fighting for the past couple of years. So if Kayla Harrison rolls through Lad, then all of a sudden it's like, wow, okay, she is really talented. Man, maybe I should get on board. You get the process, right? Expect to see more of this. Let me know your thoughts on Aspen Lad joining the PFL. If you're happy about it, um, if you're worried she might miss weight, I don't think she will, but you never know. Um, let, let me know because it seems like a win for Lad in a lot of ways. And for PFL, especially if you get the Harrison fight, it gives Harrison someone with actual name recognition to go against. So 
I don't know. Let me know your thoughts on it all because it is it is pretty wild and it's a strategy I expect PFL to continue utilizing for the near future. All right, next up, we're going to discuss very quickly the Hamzat Chemaev story that was recently broke, refuted, and it's kind of up in the air where it is. Hamzat Chemaev was over in Russia supporting as a quarter man um, fighter he trains with, and there was a story that broke from Kabate that his passport had been seized, which was an issue, right? Uh, his manager refuted this. He said, no, that's not the case. Uh, his passport has not been seized. There's no issues here, right? Um, although Combate is a very good source, right? So it's strange to hear that refute and say, oh, okay, they missed this. It's possible, but the only other source that refutes it is Chemaev's manager, which would make sense to refute because you don't want to cause issue there, right? Um, and Combate's story said, you know, they're frantically working to try and resolve the issue. They're reaching out to the Swedish government to, to try and get it reinstated. So Hamza can leave. Um, you have the bigger names again, like Okamoto tweeting out. Okay. This is a not true story. According to the manager, blah, blah, blah. But again, I haven't seen a true resolution to it, whichever way this breaks. And it might have already been resolved by the time this recording comes out. Um, It is important, again, to look at what is going on, as we touched about last week, in the grander external environment of government regulation for MMA in Russia, Dagestan, that whole area. That's Obviously, there's been a lot of movement recently in the Ukraine-Russian conflict, and this story is an example of what I talked about last week, where like you might see some of these MMA fighters get drafted, depending on how things go. You also have Ramzan Gadirov, who, again, is well-known for his relationship with several MMA fighters, but particularly Chemayev and Habib, but in terms of active fighters, Chemayev, where he now has been promoted to be a uh, something colonel, a very high promotion, in Russia um, by, by Putin and has made comments about, you know, sending his sons to the front lines and you should kill these, these Russian uh, politicians who aren't doing what they need to do. We should use nuclear warheads, all this stuff, very incendiary language in regards to what's going on in Ukraine. As that situation continues to develop, and as things tend to get more strained in Russia and their caucuses, including Dagestan, which, again, Dagestan has also kind of put up several several things that Dagestan have put up, kind of open criticism of Putin, which is interesting. As that situation continues to develop, fighters will become more at risk for this passport situation from actually happening. Now, again... Was it resolved? Got to imagine something happened there, right? Combate is one to just kind of make this up. Um, so something probably happened in that regard. Is it being taken care of behind the scenes? Was there a misunderstanding about it? Hard to say, but it's going to make people think twice 
especially if you're from that region, of going to visit family, going to go back to the country right now. And we'll see what happens with Chemayev. But this, again, is what we talked about last week. It's There are forces you cannot fight. If, if Chemayev really had his passport revoked and then was drafted, right, by Kadyrov, by Putin, whatever, that would be a big deal. It'd be a huge deal. And that's Chemayev. So there's a lot of eyes on him. He can probably push back a little bit more, has more leverage in that situation. Other Russian and Dagestani fighters that maybe have names, but we don't know too much about, who knows, right? They might have to go fight. It depends on where this whole situation goes. But as it continues to go on, it looks more and more likely that, at least in the interim, Russia will have to mobilize more. And, you know, somebody like Chemayev, who is in good physical shape and in the right age range, might get called up. Again, yet to be seen where this all resolves. um, But, and, and at least while I'm recording this, we don't have a clear resolution. We have two sides going back and forth on it. But I would not be shocked if we hear more stories like this coming up. It's an unfortunate situation all around. It's it's pretty terrible. Um, but to think the MMA community is immune, to think that, oh, Hamza Chemaev's too big of a star in the UFC, they would never send him over. Islam Makachev, oh, there's no way. It's hard to say, man. I mean, you look back at World War II, people don't realize. World War II, you had some very famous people get drafted or or opt to sign up and enlist to fight in World War II. Several famous musicians, several famous writers, they, they went over and fought in World War II. Actors. Like, this, this is not a, oh, you have a pass because you're a UFC contender or UFC champion. Champion might help you, right? But uh, it's hard to say. So we'll see where this goes, but expect more stories like this as long as this con... Expect more stories like this the longer this whole thing between Russia and Ukraine drags out. It's going to affect the industry, especially MMA, because you have such a huge pool of Russian... Dagestan fighters, everybody in that region, right? Um, it, it's gonna, it's gonna impact things. Two quick hits we need to go over today. One is Bellator purses. So, Bellator purses were announced from the Athletic Commission for Bellator two eighty six. A lot of people saying, "Man, these are real low, especially compared to the UFC." Everybody's compare, comparing them, saying, "Oh, UFC fighter pay is bad, but look at Bellator." Then you have Patricio Pitbull come out and say. It's funny, everybody's talking about how much I'm making. Uh, I actually make as much around UFC champions who would be jealous, et cetera. You don't have any clue. And then you have John Nash tweeting, you know, I know for a fact Patricio is making multiples of what that stated purse is, et cetera, et cetera. Important note with fighter purses. We've talked about made-up purses all the time, right? It's a plague on this industry, especially on social media. You have people... You have irresponsible sites 
that go out, make up what UFC fighters are making, post them, and then they circulate and be like, whoa, you get paid that much, right? And then they have people like Patty Pimble be like, I didn't get paid anywhere that much. I got 12 and 12. Just straight lies. That's terrible. We've talked about that a million times. Can't trust that. But even when you have an official athletic commission source, it is important to note that while those numbers are much more accurate than what we see from some of these other sites, especially for an org like Bellator, there are side letter agreements, things behind the scenes where it's not a completely like, oh, this is an accurate person for this guy. If they're lower on the card, it almost certainly is, right? Lower to mid, you're probably in the right range of, okay, this is probably what they made or very close to what they made. But the higher up you go, when you get to champions, when you get to title contenders, big names, then it changes, right? Because they have much bigger sponsorship opportunity. They have different side letter agreements. There's a bunch of other stuff going on that we don't see. So important to know that caveat. Because yes, if you look at just purely surface payouts between a UFC athletic commission payout and Bellator, Bellator is always going to be lower. But there's a reason why Patricio is saying you have no idea why multiple fighters left the UFC and go to Bellator when they're free agents, right? So they're not on a losing streak. They're not towards the end of their career. They're a true free agent and they've negotiated to leave. There's a reason that they do that. Sometimes we actually see it in the reported purse amount where we see, okay, they were making more than the UFC. Other times we're like, wait, what? But a lot of that, again, deals with stuff behind the scenes. So those lists are never 100% accurate. Important to note. They are much more accurate and closer than some of the other stuff we've talked about, but still, don't forget that. Uh, Second thing we have to bring up, Uriah Hall has come out of retirement to fight LaVon Bell on the undercard of... Jake Paul versus Anderson Silva. So again, this is a wild fight. Um, It's a boxing match. But it makes sense for Hall to do, right? He was done with MMA. He retired. Probably didn't have that many great MMA prospects. Had really struggled, lost a bunch. He's going to make more money here than I think he made in his entire UFC career. Well... Actually, that might not be true. He will make he will have his biggest payout of his combat sports career. Single payout. I, that I'm almost positive of. It just shows as long as there are opportunities there, they'll take him. Jose Aldo said boxing might be a possibility. MMA, I'm still under contract with the UFC. But don't be shocked if all of a sudden Jose Aldo is out there boxing on undercards or trying to do that as well, right? Very possible. Very, very possible substitution is still out there. And again, if you're a name fighter who is struggling in MMA or don't like your pay in MMA, you've got to look at guys like Hall, Askren, Woodley, go out and box and make way more money and say, hmm, Anderson Silva, again, going to get probably his biggest payout. He was a legend in the sport. He is a first-round battle Hall of Famer easily. Most dominant middleweight champion in UFC history. And he's probably going to get the most money he's ever made fighting a YouTuber. Boxing at 47 or 48 or however old he is. Things to think about. Those are quick hits. Let me know if I missed anything else on those. Again, shorter week and where I'm recording, not a ton out there. But yeah, let me know your thoughts, especially on Uriah Hall versus LeVon Bell, because that is just wild stuff.
Wild stuff, y'all. Okay, so last thing we have to talk about today, which is a big deal. Um, Not the update we want, but an update in the UFC antitrust lawsuit case. So there's been no movement on the original lawsuit, which is Kung Lei and others versus the UFC from 2014, I think, or 2013. Um, Instead, the judge has halted uh, the additional lawsuit, which is Cajun Johnson versus the UFC and Endeavor, right? So I was unfortunately unable to make the hearing and listen in like I wanted to because some work stuff came up. But yeah, Paul Gift do a great live tweet of it. Uh, John Nash do a good summary. And then Gift write an article for Forbes that really breaks it down pretty well. Essentially, Judge Boulware uh, stopped the second antitrust lawsuit proceedings from going forward, which is the 2017 class and beyond for Cajun Johnson, um, based on the fact that there is another case that could very well go to the Supreme Court, which is a tuna price-fixing case, Olin uh, Wholesale Grocery Cooperative versus Bumblebee Foods. We've talked about it a little bit um, in past because Bullware has waited for some decisions on this and, and cited that case. But this particular case is seemingly may go to the Supreme Court. And Bullware doesn't want to make any decisions that then might be overturned by the Supreme Court's decision. Um, there are some other great, I mean, read gifts article as always on the stuff. Cause he's got a better breakdown than what I've got, especially from a legal perspective. But the main thing you have to know here is that this really delays the second part of the lawsuit, right? Um, Bulware even states, I think that his order on class certification in Lee, which is the original lawsuit will drive a lot of what will happen in Johnson. So rather than, rather than, you know, make this decision, tack it on, and then just have the Supreme Court overturn it or put out something else that then allows for another challenge for this because the UFC has said, we're going to challenge your class certification. That That's already pretty much, you know, set. They've, they've indicated, Judge Bulware, if you class certify this, we're going to challenge it. So he's waiting to kind of have a little bit more ammo and, because no judge wants to write something that then is just flipped by another court. It's not great. So because of that, the Supreme Court first has to decide to accept the petition um, because UFC won't, as, as Gift states correctly, UFC won't even be able to start its appeal until that case is resolved. Uh, and then if the petition is rejected, Bullware has already gone on record saying a UFC appeal of his class certification order could take two to three years. This is just delaying it all, right? This is second part of the lawsuit getting delayed, getting bogged down. The fact that Bullware indicates that just the class certification piece could take two to three years, just the appeal of that could take two to three years. Again, tells you how much of a mess the judicial system is in this regard. And we're still waiting on Bullware to write the class certification. It's been over a year. It's it's an issue. It is a big issue. So 
the main update here that I, I hate to tell every single one of you that care about this case or that think it's going to make a big difference. Just to get to the next step, I'm going to guess we're at least three to five years away. And that's, again, the Supreme Court either accepting or denying the petition for the tuna case, the class certification appeal and all that fun stuff. Yeah, it's going to be a while. And then let's say class certification survives all that stuff. Okay, we're good. Then you have to still deal with the actual trial and prove did the UFC do these things, et cetera, which maybe the UFC settles, maybe not, who knows, but like that's, this is just one aspect of the overall antitrust lawsuit case. So it will be over a decade since this was original fi- originally filed before we're even getting to, if we get to a main trial. Again, if class certification gets appealed and then overturned, if Bowlware certifies and then it's overturned, no, it's not class certified, then that pretty much kills the lawsuit in its tracks anyway. But the fact it's taken literally over a decade or will take literally over a decade is something that's, yeah. I wish I had better news. I really wish I did. Um, And again, with the Johnson case, that's technically a separate case, but Bulware's indicated that's going to be driven by his decision on class certification and whether or not the Supreme Court accepts the tuna case, all of that, it's it's just, it's a mess. It's a mess. And yeah, it, it's hard to imagine we will get anything of substance on this anytime soon, which is a shame because we know right before the, uh, the pandemic with everything happened, you had, you know, and, and in, I believe it was 2020 even, you had all those new documents, you had all that stuff going on. And, and now we're we're kind of stuck. And it's, it's going to be stuck for a while. So sorry to burst anyone's bubble on a big change in USC contracts or any of that stuff or any big update there, but that's where we are. I cannot speak to how typical this is in the judicial system in the US, but from at least like with any expert level, but from people I've talked to, I mean, this isn't super uncommon. It's a little bit that it's taken this long, but it is what it is, right? So from the UFC's perspective and how this affects business and fighters, this is bad for the fighters, obviously, because they're not going to get any real relief from the judicial system for some of their complaining on fighter pay or, or conditions and things like that. For the UFC, it's great. And for Endeavor, it's great because, again, Endeavor is still trying to pay off its debt and get into that mode of self-sustaining profit with all of its business units. And the UFC is still the crown jewel main driver of its profit right now. So anything that threatens that in the short term is a, a big deal until Endeavor can get the rest of its ducks in a row. This pretty much insulates the UFC and Endeavor for another three years, I would say minimum could be a lot more hard to say so business perspective ufc and endeavor are like yeah this is great this just they they probably are happy for bullware to take as much time as he needs sending the class certification and happy bullware decided okay i mean i know they're happy bullware decided to listen to the tuna case they don't want a fast resolution to this because if the resolution is against them that's bad news um 
they're okay dragging it out. Probably don't like paying the lawyer costs and all that, but still, it's worth it. I would imagine from a business risk perspective, it's worth it to have it continually dragged out than risk a fast resolution that might go against them. Depends on how they feel with everything, right? So the fact that the judge is looking to certify, they're almost certainly happy it's extended because that's not what the UFC wanted. UFC was hoping class would certification would not occur and they could be done with this. So we'll see how it goes. But yeah, that's the update on the antitrust lawsuit. Again, read GIF's article of Forbes. It's very good. Um, and check out his tweets if you want as well. I will try and make it to the next one depending on work. I was frustrated I could not, but sorry I couldn't give you that from the horse's mouth. That being said, not a huge update that we're super happy about anyway. So let me know your thoughts. If you even care about the antitrust lawsuit at this point, if you're just burnt out on it or just over it because it's taking so long, we'd love to hear that as well. It's just to get sentiment on where you guys stand with that. All right, and that wraps up another episode of the Fight Business Podcast. Sorry, this one's out getting late. This is not... Sure dogs or John Brannigan's fault. This is mine. Uh, apologies on that, but appreciate you guys for listening. Again, if you're on Stitcher, Apple, uh, Spotify, what have you, love you guys. If you're watching on YouTube, hit the like, subscribe, bell notification, drop a comment about anything I've covered uh, or tweet, tweet at me, whatever you guys want to do. Uh, DM's always open for that. Appreciate you guys as always. And until next time, get money.